Okay, it's official, we've started. So, um, since Nissen Caymans has an unsatiable uh, appetite for stories, so I'm going to get him out of the way with this story in a story in a story. And if you say it over, it will be a story in a story in a story in a story. So this is, um, this and this is covers me for the next uh, couple hours for sure. Let's, uh, let's start like this. So in this, the beginning of this week's parasha is parashas mishpatim. Parashas mishpatim, the first word of the parasha, mishpatim means laws. And it's referring, and it begins discussing all of the intricate monetary laws and interpersonal laws, slavery, stealing, thieves, poor people, wealthy, all different kinds of laws are discussed in the parsha. That's what mishpatim means, the laws. But let's first, before we even get into the law part, let's first talk about the first word of the parsha, which is actually not mishpatim. It is ve'ela. And these are, and Rashi comments, if I tell you these are, that means I'm starting a new topic. If I tell you and these are, that means I'm continuing from the previous topic. So what was discussed previously was the giving of the Torah at Sinai. And since over here it says, and these are, that means that we're continuing and we're connecting this week's Torah portion on Mishpatim and the laws with last week's Torah portion, specifically the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now, why is that significant? Why is that important for not only Rashi to point out, but for the Torah himself, Hashem himself rather, to say, ve'ele, and these things are connected. And it all comes back to emuno, to believing and, uh, and trusting and having the faith in Hashem, so to speak, to such an extent that I say, you know what? Life is not all about between man and God. I have a dual requirement. There's between man and God that I have to have a certain, follow certain guidelines and live up to those expectations. There's also emuno, an understanding that equally as important is ben adam between man and man, between myself and my fellow human beings. And therefore Hashem says, make no mistake about it. Just like in last week's Torah portion when it was discussing between man and God, those are the things that are given about Sinai. Yes, within the Ten Commandments, there's also between man and man, but even the nitty-gritty laws of interpersonal relationships, those are all just as important as the relationship that we have with Hashem. And when we're talking about this, this is the story that I wanted to share. It's a story of Amunah, it's a story of the lengths that must one must have when he's having this Amuna and the extent of where it will take him. Here's a story. There was a Rav in Eretz Yisrael. The Rav's name was, I'll tell you in a second. Uh, the Rav's name was Harav. Harav, sorry. Okay, his name was Rabbi Friedman, Rabbi Friedman from Rechassim. A, a, it's a, it's a uh, town in Israel. And this is a story that he said happened to him. He was going on an airplane. He had to go take a flight. 
and he was going to to America through Europe years ago, and he got to the he was waiting online to be able to have the clerk stamp his passport, and he needed certain papers in order to be able to get through them through you know to get past the uh, clerk. And in front of him in line was a well-known Magid, a well-known rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky. We've talked about him. We spoke about him in the past. He was a well-known Magid. He learned in yeshiva in uh, Bialystok, Navardic yeshiva in Bialystok. The once, the famous story that he used to make, you know, self-deprecating humor that he had. He was a very, very short person. Okay? Very short. He was about 4'10", maybe. I saw him. He was very, very short. He used to say, he said one time I woke up and um, I thought I grew. My head was on one side of the bed. My feet were on the other side of the bed. I said, wow, overnight, a miracle. And then I realized I was sleeping the wrong direction. I was in the width of the bed instead of the length. That's how he would talk. He was a way, he had a way of words. I never heard him in person. I saw videos and I've heard speeches from him. But Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky was in front of this Rabbi Friedman speaking to the clerk. And the clerk said to him, sorry, sir, you don't have the right papers. And Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky, who was originally from Russia, he had no idea what the man was talking. He, did, he understood that he can't go, but he had no idea what he needed to do. And the clerk said, I'm sorry, you know, like he was motioning him away. So Yaakov Galinsky walks away and he turns to Ray Freeman and he says, I'll be there. I'm going to be on the plane. I have Amuna. I have trust in Hashem. It's all going to be okay. Hashem is going to look out for me. And Ray Freeman's thinking to himself, Nebuch, Nebuch, he doesn't know what's coming. You don't know the language. They said you don't have the right paperwork. You can't come. Can't come is you can't come. Ray Friedman wishes he could help him, but there's nothing he can do. So he gets all his paperwork in order. He goes to uh, you know the gate and he's waiting for the flight. He doesn't see Rabbi Galinsky. He goes around and he's davening mincha here. He's doing this, taking care of things for the flight. Finally, he's waiting in line for the flight, and he's walking onto the plane. And who does he see on the plane but Rabbi Galinsky? And Rabbi Galinsky looks up at him and he smiles. Says, "You see, I told you." All you have to do is have a Muna, Hashem will take care of it. And Rabbi Galinsky says, come sit down. I'm going to tell you a story. Until the flight takes off, I'm going to tell you a story of where I got this Amuna from. And if Yaakov Galinsky tells him a story. Now Galinsky says, by World War II, I was sent to Siberia. And I was there for years thinking that this is the worst that could happen to me. Little did I know what was happening on the other side under the German occupation. It was all that much worse. And for years we were struggling and working in this cold, bitter, bitter cold and the treacherous work that they put us through. When all was said and done and after we finally left, I came to Eretz Yisrael and I was looking forward, I had dreamt about meeting my mother, and I'm going to tell my mother this, I'm going to tell my mother that. And when I finally came to Eretz Yisrael, this is in the late 40s already, or early 50s, 
I had no mother, I had no father, I had no brother, I had no sister, I had no one. And I was very tzibrochen, as they say in Yiddish, I was broken. I had nothing to live for. And I was feeling very dejected, I was like, done, I'm done. I'm finished with life, as my Polish grandmother used to say, I have no strength, I can't do this. Finally, a friend of mine suggests to me, you know what, why don't you go to the Chazanish? The Chazanish, Rabbi Avram Yishayoh Karelitz, was the great sage. He lived in Bnei Brak. He was well known. He, he had a hard life himself. And he was a leader of not only Bnei Brak, but of, of uh, the whole Eretz Yisrael community. So I went to Rabbi Yak to, to, Rav, to the Chazanish, and uh, I was there with a friend of mine and we start talking and I start explaining to the Chazanish all the ordeals that I endured and everything that happened to me and how I, I have nothing else to live for. And the Chazanish said, Yankele, I want to tell you a story. And the Chazanish said to him, here's the Maisen. It was a Yid in Lithuania. And this Yid in Lita, in Lithuania, he was a businessman, he was a peddler. He used to go from place to place and he would buy merchandise, a lot of merchandise on credit and he would sell it and he would go around. One year, one year, every year he would borrow money to be able to do it rather. And um, one year he got himself, he procured enough money to borrow from people to go to the fair and to buy the merchandise to bring back to town. And then tragedy struck, he got sick and he was stuck in bed. And it was time for the fair. Who's gonna go to the fair? Doesn't know what to do. Could he send someone in his place? And his wife tells him, you know what? I never did this before. I'll do it, I'll do it. I'm not used to this, it's not my comfort zone, but desperate times bring desperate measures. I'll take the money and I'll go. He's really uncomfortable. He says, you know what, okay, fine, fine. He gives her the money. She packs up for the big trip to the big city. You know, back in the day, you lived in the shtetl. You went to school in the shtetl. You married in the shtetl. You grew, you died in the shtetl. It was all in the shtetl. So this is her first time out in the big city in Leipzig. And um, she's really taken in by the sights. This is unbelievable. And she's looking at this place and that place and this tourist attraction. Finally, finally, she makes her way to the marketplace. And she's looking around for the best merchandise. What would her husband like? She wants to make her husband, you know, she wants to do a good job. She finally gets to the store. She says, you know what? This is good merchandise. This is a good price. This is where I'm going to spend the money. Okay, this is how much I want. She tells, she, you know, she haggles with the, the store owner and they finally agree on a price. She says, okay, here we go. How much is it? A thousand ruble, no problem. And she opens her handbag and the money is gone. Oy vey. All the money that my husband borrowed for us to be able to live for the next six months off of. What are we going to do? It's gone. And she starts looking around in her pockets, in her coat pocket. It's nowhere looking around the whole store, trying to trace her steps. 
And then as she's at the edge of the fair, of the fairgrounds, she hears someone say, oh, look what I found. And she sees it's her wallet. It's her bundle of money. And she runs over to him. Did you just find that bundle of money? He says, yeah, it's great. This is my lucky day. She says, no, no. There were two rubber bands strung around it. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's it. That's mine. And he says, oh, I feel terrible. I, you know, I have no money myself, but it's mine. And I feel bad that you can't uh, have it. The Gemara tells us that it belongs to me. And she says, what do you mean the Gemara tells you it belongs to you? It doesn't belong to you. It's my money. I gave you simonim. I gave you signs to show that it belongs to me. Please return the money. And he says, I, you know what? I really would love to give it back to you, but it's not fair to my wife and children. It's my lucky day. I'm going to give away all the money that Hashem gave to me rightfully. He said, you know what? Let's go to the roof. And they go to the rub of the town, and they both present their story. And the rough says, you know, my dear Rebetzin, I feel bad. The truth of the matter is that the halacha is that it belongs to the man who found it. Because the Gemara says, People feel their money all the time. And therefore, says the Gemara, we can assume that when a person loses money, he immediately gives up hope from finding it because of the circumstances that it's the majority of people that are not Jewish, so they're not necessarily going to return it because they don't abide by the what the Torah says. There's a rule called finders, uh, what has it go? Finders, keepers, losers, weepers, something like that, right? So that's the law. So you can't expect them to follow what the Gemara says. And even the minority, so that's why you're, we assume that you gave up hope and therefore it belongs to the finder. But she's crying and crying. He says, you know what? I'm going to send the Shaila to Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan Specter. Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan Specter was the chief rav of Kovna. And we'll let him decide. They send the telegram over. And the, chazen, the, the Kovna rav, Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan, sends back a telegram the money goes back to the woman. So the Chazanish turns to Yanka Galinsky and says, Yankala, you're a Tamil Chacham. You learned in Yeshiva. Tell me, who's right? Why did the Kovner Rav say that it belongs to the woman? So Yanka Galinsky says, you know, I really don't know. The truth of the matter is, it's a Mephorosha Gemara. It's an open Gemara that says that it should, that indicate that it should go back to the person who found it. I don't know why it goes to the woman. Said the Chazanish to Rabbi Yankel. Rabbi Yankel, listen up. The Gemara says that when a person, if I lose my money, I know I lost it immediately, and therefore we can assume that I gave up hope. In this story, who did the money belong to? It belonged to the husband who's sick at home. He had no idea that his wife lost the money. So yes, she gave up hope from finding it, but it wasn't her money to give up hope on. And therefore, it never took effect. The yish, the giving up hope, never took effect because he never knew that he lost it. And her giving up hope doesn't count because it doesn't really belong to her. Said the Chazanesh, Yankaleh, this is you. 
This is you. You want to give up hope. You want to say that's it. You lost your father. You lost your mother. You lost your brothers. You lost your sisters. You lost everyone. You lost everything. So you want to give up on yourself also. Guess what? Do business balabast. You're not in charge. You're part of Klal Yisrael. You're Hashem's child. You're Hashem's creation. Hashem created you. He's the one who's in charge. And you have no right to give up. You have to give it your all. Notwithstanding the circumstances. You have no right to give up on life. You have no right to say, that's it, I'm enough. So Bianca Galinsky, from that day on, what did he do? He went and he went to yeshiva and he got married and he built a family. And he said, by his grandchild, Sheva Brachas, he says, he says, he said, he said, um, I forgot the pasuk he quoted. Um, one second. Yeah. Rachaik mi Yeshuas, Rachaik Yeshuasi mi Dibre Shagosi. Shavosi, Shavosi. Rachaik, my salvation was far from what that which I prayed for. Instead of Yanka Galinsky in his later years in life, he said, When I was in Siberia, what was, what was I praying for? You know what I was praying for? For a piece of bread. I was praying for a warm coat. I was praying to survive one more day, another week, another month. That's what I wanted. And I said, Hashem, if you give me that, I'll be happy. And look at me today, at my children, my grandchildren. That which I prayed for, is so that which I got is so far away from that which I received. I would never have dreamt of that which I can get. All we have to have is just a little bit of faith. A little bit of Amunah, no, Hashem is there, Hashem is watching us. Hashem is here between me and Him, and between me and you, and between me, us, and all of humanity. That, my dear friends, is the story and the story and the story. And hopefully that story will live on with us to be another story and a story and a story and a story. And we'll say, this story is what gave me the strength to do this, that, or the other. It's cold outside, it's dark outside, and it's difficult outside, no question about it. Whether you got the vaccine or you didn't get the vaccine. You know, the Gemara says, there's a story. Um, the Pasuk says, Hashem said that a person has to realize, a person does not get sustained from bread alone, a person is sustained from the fact that Hashem says he should be sustained. And in fact, we find in the days of the temple and the Beis Hamikdash, when the Kohanim would split up the special loaves, the, um, the showbreads that were in the Beis Hamikdash, they would get a tiny amount and they felt satisfied because the blessing and the Baruch of Hashem was there and they felt satisfied. Rebchanina ben Daisa, Rebchanin Medez was one of the great sages who lived at the time of the, at the Mishnah. His daughter one time, by mistake, put vinegar in the Shabbos candles instead of oil, olive oil. And on Shabbos, she realized what she did and she said, Oh, Abba, what's going to be? We're not going to have light. And Rebchanin Medez said that the same Hashem who commanded that olive oil should light can command and say that vinegar should light. And indeed, the candles or the flames lasted just as long as it would have, as if it was vinegar. And the, the Ben Yoyodor, Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, explained that this was not a miracle. 
This was not considered a miracle which deducts from the merits of a person. You know why? Because if Hanina ben Doisa lived, nature is miraculous just as much as miracles are miraculous. The fact that olive oil burns, why is that nature? Why does that make sense? It doesn't have to make sense. It's miraculous just the same. My entire friends, the vaccine is great. But who makes the vaccine work? Who decides that the vaccine should help? Hashem is the one that decides. You know, my, we had, unfortunately, we had a Hashkacha story. Without going into details, we had a certain Hashkacha story that happened. It happened to be the person was there, etc. And it turns out something not so enjoyable, not something not so geschmack. And my wife said to me that my, my son Eliezer, just like our Eliezer, my Eliezer said to my wife a few weeks ago about something else. She said, Hashkacha, divine providence, is not only true when it turns out all fine and dandy. Hashkocha, divine providence, is also when it's not so enjoyable. It's also when it's difficult. It's the same divine providence. I called my father. I was talking to my father the other night. I said, I have a hashkocha maise. I have a hashkocha maise. It's divine providence. It's not so, I have to figure out what to do, but that's not the point. Bottom line is, hashkocha is hashkocha. Hashem is watching over us and Hashem is there for us. That was a lot of stories to get there, but let's continue. Okay, here's one more thing before we get into the real juice of it. You ready? Gematrias. Everyone know what gematrias are. Gematrias are when there are numerical values to each of the olive base. Each of the letters of the olive base of the alphabet have a numerical value associated with that. And this is something which I don't really know what to do with this, but, but it's just cool. So I'm going to share it with you. It's a little bit, it's not necessarily, it's, yeah, okay, let's just, let's just uh, go with it and we'll see what happens. Okay, it says, these are the laws, you shall place before them. Rashi says, what does it mean you shall place before them? You should place it before them like a shulchan aruch, like a set table. Yes, this is where the Shulchan Aruch, the name, the Shulchan Aruch comes from. The Shulchan Aruch is the four-volume um, books of laws that Rabbi Yosef Karo authored in the 1500s. And he was writing, he called it the Shulchan Aruch as a set table because it's setting up very clearly the, the laws that we must follow. On the, based on the Torah, and he was basing it on early commentaries. Now, you ready? Here we go. Okay. The four names, the four books that the Shulchan Aruch authored, as you see on the screen, is Orachayim, which is the way of life, way of the daily living, and it deals with all the laws of the seven days of the week, Shabbos, Yom Tif, regular daily laws, then there's a volume called Yoradea, which means to adjudicate or teach the laws, the knowledge. Evan Ho'ezer, which deals with um, marital laws and the like. And Chosha Mishpat, which deals with um, monetary laws. Okay? Here's the deal. If you spell out in Hebrew, 
Orach Chaim, which is the first volume. And then you spell out Yore Deo, which is the second volume. Spell out Even Ho'ezer, which is the third volume. And then Choshen Mishpah, which is the fourth. And you add up the numerical values of each of the letters of these four volumes of Shulchan Aruch, you will come out with a grand total of 1,705. If you tally up the numbers of simonim, which is like chapters in the Shulchan Aruch, from these four, from these four volumes, there are 697 chapters in Orachayim, which is the daily light living, there's 403 in Yoradeo, which deals with, um, you know, ribis, stoka, and things like that, other, other laws. There's 400, 403. In the marital laws, etc. there's 178. And then in the monetary laws, there's 427. If you're good enough at math, you'll know that 697 plus 403 plus 178 plus 427 is 1,705. It's an interesting tidbit that the numerical value of the four volumes of the Shulchan Aruch that he authored and the number of chapters that are contained within them are the same number. Now, what does that mean? I'm not sure what that means, but it's a good trivia question. And it's also something which shows to a certain degree um, that we're not talking about simple people who put together Shulchan Aruch, whether it's Beis Yosef or the tour who predated him and also had a similar numbering system. That's just an interesting side note for Shulchan Aruch. Now, let's get into Mishpat. Now, the truth of the matter is, if you've been following along the Chumash, since Sefer Bereshis, Parshas Bereshis, after Simchas Terah, Parshas Mishpatim is somewhat, shall we say, a uh, downer. Because, listen, Hashem creates the world. There's a flood. There's the Dar HaFlogo when the whole, all the nations were scattered around. Avram Avinu is born. He's thrown into the fiery bush. He's about to offer, after, he, he has a son after many years. He's about to offer his son as a sacrifice. Then Yitzchak is born. He marries Sarah, Rivka. Then they didn't have children for 20 years. They finally have twins. Avram dies. Asaph tries to kill Yaakov. Yaakov runs away to Lavan. He has the dream with the ladder. He has all the children, all the sheep, and all the thing. And Lavan comes running after him. And then Yosef is thrown into a pit. And Yosef is sold down as a, a slave to Egypt. And then Yaakov comes down eventually and there's a famine and then Yaakov dies and Yosef dies. And then we start Sefer Shemois. Moshe is born. There's a decree to throw all the children into the Nile. Moshe grows up in the palace. He runs away. He goes to Midian and he marries Sephora and there's a burning bush. And then there's the plagues when he goes back to Egypt. And then there's the giving of the, the um, splitting of the sea and the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. This is unbelievable. This is called Roller coaster on steroids. Things are happening. It's so much action. It's so much fun. And then we get to Parshas Mishpatim. Okay. So if someone buys a slave, so this is the amount of years that he can have. If Reuben steals from Shimon, this is it. You have to lend money to people that need it. If someone watches something and gets stolen, it's just like, oh, come on. This is boring. 
It's almost like having to teach children today after they're watching a movie for two hours. Okay, I'm going to draw on the board, you know, three times five is 15. That's boring. No one could take it. Mishpatim on a simple level is somewhat of a downer. But we have to remember two things. Number one, what mishpatim really is, you know, you go to a wedding and the groom speaks and he says, uh, this is so un- unbelievable. Thank you so much for joining me on the happiest day of my life. Now, what's wrong with that statement? Because it's not supposed to be the happiest day of his life. It may be, but it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be the beginning of the happiest days of his life. It's not all about dating and about engagements and about trips and honeymoons and weddings. No, that's not what it's about. It's about daily living, paying the bills, going shopping, changing dirty diapers if it is, whatever it may be. That's the joy of living as a couple. That's the joy of living as a family. It's not all about the, the, you know, the excitement. Sefer Bereshis was exciting. The beginning, the first half of Sefer Shemais was exciting. But now the Jewish people are now a nation. Now we're, so to speak, a couple with Hashem. Now is when married life begins. This is the test. Are we in it? Or did we just want the excitement? There's a big difference between love and lust. Love is enduring. Lust fades away like a dream. Mishpatim shows us this is what we are. We're a couple with Hashem. We demonstrate that love because it's not always exciting. Yes, there'll be those hashkacha stories that make it all fun and make it all exciting. And there'll be all those crazy stories. But the bottom line is Mishpatim is the nitty gritty and the details of living with Hashem. That's why Mishpatim is not a downer. Mishpatim is, okay, now we get into living with Hashem. Living with Hashem as a couple, as a family, not just with the roller coasters and the excitement. That's number one. Number two. Number two is, we all had friends in the university, college, and high school, in yeshiva, wherever it may be, that were um, brilliant people. They aced every test. They were on the top of the class. Maybe in some cases, they were even the valedictorian. But that doesn't necessarily equal them being offered a job in the university or necessarily getting the most prestigious position in whatever place that they seek employment. Why is that? Why is it that it's not always, and many times probably not, the ones who are the most brilliant, who are getting the highest and best positions? You know why? You know who are the ones who did get the positions? You know who are the ones who did get asked by the college or the school? Do you know, could you teach here? Could you help join us? It was the ones who showed dedication. It was the ones who said, I don't have, I don't do the classes and study for the tests because I have to do it. 
I study for the tests because I get to do it. It's the ones who said, I want to do this. I want to take part in this. I want to understand more. I want to learn more from your ways. You know, we, we all have professors or rabbim or rabbis in shuls or college or whatever it may be. And we get to know them and we spend time with them even on our own time, even when it's not required, even when it's not in order to get a good grade on the test and to go home and tell our parents we did well. No, it's because I want that relationship. I want that connection. What Mishpatim is all about is these are the laws that we have to do. But the excitement and the pleasure we get from it is not because we have to, it's because we want to. We want to understand and come closer to Hashem. How do we get that? By spending time with Him. And by spending time, so to speak, with Hashem, we understand how Hashem thinks. The Torah, Parshas Mishpatim, with all those nitty-gritties, we see Hashem's, so to speak, way and train of thought. What is considered important? You know, in last week's Parsha, when Yisro came to Moshe and he said, you can't judge all the Jewish people by yourself. You have to have people to help you, assistance. So Yisro said, any great big thing they'll bring to you and every small thing they'll bring to your assistance. When Moshe actually listened to Yisro, it says in the verse that Moshe said, every difficult thing you'll bring to me and every easy thing you could decide for yourselves. Why does it change big and small versus difficult and easy? Because in Yisro's mind, Yisro was coming from the courts of Midian. The courts of Midian looked very differently at a court case involving $100 to a court case involving a million dollars. It's a very big difference. A million dollars, it's like a million dollars. $100, I find okay, all right. Moshe says, no, that's not how the Torah looks at it. The Torah looks at it, is it right? Does it belong to him or him? doesn't make a difference how much money it is. The halacha is the halacha. If it's difficult, if it's difficult, that's when it makes a difference. And that's when they should come to me. That's how Hashem thinks. And that's the more we involve ourselves with that, the more we show that dedication, and the more it will rub off on us that we'll begin to think like him. Listen, you know how it is. When we start thinking and making decisions like our mentors, we realize, hey, that person made an impression on me that without me even having to ask him, I start thinking like him. That's why many times people choose to ask a rabbi for advice on something, not because the rabbi necessarily has an expertise in that area, but because the rabbi, so to speak, thinks more like Hashem, so to speak. And I want to know what Hashem says, but I can't get through to him. I wouldn't have prophecy anymore. So I go to the rabbi, I go to someone who is closer to Hashem, and therefore thinks more like him, so to speak, to give me some advice and to guide me. Now let's get to the dogs. Because I know that everyone has their pictures of their dogs waiting to share the screen to show everyone their dog. In fact, I already got an email from someone after today that she was very disappointed that the breed of dog that she has 
was not represented in the picture. I apologize profusely. So if your dog wasn't there, my deepest apologies. In the email, there was a picture of dogs because the title is What Dogs Have to Do with This Week's Parsha. Now, the truth of the matter is that dogs are actually explicitly said in this week's Parsha, but that's not what I was referring to. I was referring to something else. The Parsha, the Pasuk says, Dan is usually the one to make sure that we connect it to the um, title. He's not, he wasn't able to be here live today. I did tell him I would send him a recording. So we're going to have to do that either way and get into this. Here's how it goes. You know, in Parshas Vo'ero, we see the plague of frogs, Svardeya. And the Pasuk says that the frogs even went into the fire. They went into the oven and had themselves killed. And it was a special reward that was given to the frogs, that those frogs didn't die. The dogs, as we were leaving Egypt, the Pasuk says, the verse says that the dogs did not bark. And as a result of that, in this week's parasha, it says that Hashem said that when we fought, when we slaughter an animal and it turns out to be not kosher, you should throw it to the dog as a reward to the fact that the dogs didn't bark. So the question is, I don't think I said this, I don't think I told this to you then, but the question is asked, the dogs didn't bark, fine, big deal. The frogs threw themselves into the fire. Shouldn't they get a greater reward than the dogs for generations? For thousands of years, there's a commandment to throw the meat to the dog. The meat that you can't eat, that's not kosher, throw it to the dog. Why is it that the dogs get a bigger reward, apparently, than the frogs who gave who were willing to give up their life? The answer is because it's easier to give up your life and throw yourself into the fire than to shut your mouth. Isn't that right? I enjoy talking. As you, if you couldn't tell, I enjoy talking. It's a lot easier to do That's a tremendous right. thing to shut our mouths. Now, one second, listen, one second, listen, one second. Let me just bring it home because we're really, I want to connect it to this expression, then we're going to get there. Here's the deal. Because it goes one more step. In the beginning, in, in Parakh of Gimel, the beginning of chapter 23 of this week's parasha, Pasuk says, Losisa Shemashov, do not accept a false report. And Rashi says, Rashi brings down from the Gemara and the Medrash, Azhara Lemekaba Lashinhara. This is a warning for someone who's, who accepts Lashinhara and is involved in Lashinhara. The Chafetz Chaim says, because the Chafetz Chaim, I think, is connecting this also to someone who's a Mesaper, and a Baal Lashon Hara, someone who frequently says Lashon Hara. And the Gemara says that a person who's involved in Lashon Hara, he is worthy to be thrown to the dogs. And that is learned from the connection in the, the last Pasuk of chapter 22 
It said, you should throw the trefa, the animal that's not kosher, that, that you know, that's not, can be eaten. You should throw it to the dogs. And the next pasuk gives us the warning about someone who's involved in Lashon Hara in gossip. So a person who's a gossiper is worthy to be thrown to the dogs. Says the Chafetz Chaim. A dog naturally barks. It barks. That's what they do. They bark. And yet, they didn't bark when the Jewish people were going out. Human beings have das. We have seichel. We have, we have understanding. We can make calculations. We can think. And a Baloshan Hara, a Makabaloshan Hara, someone who's involved in Lashan Hara, they can't, they could speak and they could use their seichel, like it says, Ace Lachash, it's a time to be quiet. There's a time not to talk. And yet he couldn't control himself, says the Torah, even the dog who naturally barks and has no seichel and has no way of thinking like a human being can't control it, they still didn't bark. And you can't control yourself. He's worthy to be thrown to the dogs because he's worse than the dog. A dog controlled itself even when it's naturally not able to. And a human being, we're expected. We have the koya chadibor. What makes us above animals is the, is the fact that we're able to speak. But speaking without thinking is garnish vert. It's worthless. Not only is it worthless, it kills it kills, as it says, life and death are in the hands of the tongue. And today, I think we could say life and death are in the hands of the fingers because you could text something or you could write something on a, on a uh, you know, on the internet and it's all there. It's all, uh, you know, goes from one to the next. That's the koyach Hashem should give us the koyach. We should have the strength, number one. Let's just do a little bit of a recap, number one. We should have that emunah and that trust in Hashem understanding that whether it's between man and God, between man and other human beings, it's all the same Torah. It's all that important for us to be following and understanding the ways of the Torah. We should understand and remember that story in the story in the story of Hashem's being. We are Hashem's children. We are Hashem's creations. It's not up to us to say, I'm going to throw in the towel. That's it. Hashem loves us. Not only does Hashem love us more than, like we said, more than we love ourselves sometimes, but Hashem is really the one who's, so to speak, owns us. We're part of Claudius. We're part of humanity. We're part of the world. We can't just say, I want to check out. We have Mishpatim being, we had the Gematria, you know, just a fun fact. We had Mishpatim not being a downer but actually being something to say, this is what life is all about when we're connecting even closer to Hashem. It shows the amount of dedication that we have to want to learn from Hashem and from, so to speak, the way Hashem thinks. And we remember, we don't want to be like, the, we want to be somewhat like the dogs to be able to close our mouths. And just like the dogs got eternal reward, so too will we get eternal reward. You know, the Vilna Gain said that if a person controls himself from saying Lashon Hara, from gossiping, he is, and he doesn't say it, 
He merits reward that even the angels can't fathom. Because it is difficult. Recognize that it's difficult. And that's what we could get a reward for. Hashem should give us the strength to close our mouths when we need to close it. And uh, we will have a great, have a wonderful Shabbos, a wonderful week. And uh, thank you all for joining. Thanks again. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi.